You're listening to The Dish on Health IT, brought to you by Point of Care Partners, a leading health IT consultancy. Each episode will feature a rotating panel of senior consultants and guests who will talk about trends and innovations in health IT, while also highlighting how organizations can leverage these advances to solve their business problems. Laura McCrary, President and CEO of Kanza National Network, joins hosts Pooja Babra and Jocelyn Keegan for this episode of The Dish on Health IT. Kanza was recently designated as one of the first five Qualified Health Information Networks, or QHINs, to participate in the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, or TEFCA. We'll be speaking with Laura McCrary about why Kanza pursued QHIN status, insight into the process to become a QHIN, how Kanza's status as a health information network since 2010 forms their role as a QHIN, Kanza's initial QHIN membership mix, and what's new or surprising in the Common Agreement version 2. We'll also be asking Laura about what she's excited about TEFCA accomplishing in this following year. We hope you find today's episode informative and helpful. If you have topic ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, be sure to share them with us by emailing us at podcast at POCP.com or tweeting us at POCPHIT. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dish on Health IT, where we invite health IT innovators and catalysts to break down and discuss some of health IT's biggest news and most exciting milestones. We at Point of Care Partners are health IT consultants who work with stakeholders across the healthcare ecosystem and are viewed as independent, objective, trusted party like Switzerland. I'm Pooja Babra, PBM and Pharmacy Practice Lead here at Point of Care Partners, and I'll be your host for this episode. My colleague and co-host Jocelyn Keegan and I are excited to welcome special guest Laura McCrary, President and CEO at Kanza National Network. Kanza was recently designated as one of the first five Qualified Health Information Networks, or QHINs, to participate in the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, better known as TEFCA. So we'll be speaking with Laura about why Kanza pursues QHIN status, insights into the process to become a QHIN, how Kanza's status as a health information exchange network since 2010 informs their role as a QHIN, and Kanza's initial QHIN membership mix. And we're also going to be diving into what's new or surprising about the Common Agreement V2 that was just released uh, a few days ago. So breaking news on that one. Excited about that. Uh, But before we jump into our discussion, I'd like to have Jocelyn briefly introduce herself and tell us what she's looking forward to uh, learning from today's discussion. Jocelyn? Awesome. Excited to be here. Uh, Jocelyn Keegan, I'm a payer practice lead here at Point of Care Partners devoted to positive change. Um, building and getting stuff done here in healthcare IT. My focus at POCP is on interoperability, prior authorization, and really where the convergence of technology strategy and product strategy um, and standards come together. I also happen to be the program manager uh, for the DaVinci Project. Uh, So we've had a busy couple of weeks um, in general here in the industry, and um, I'm really excited about the forward progress with the QHIMS. I think that what I really enjoy, and I've gotten to see Laura present a lot over the last year or so, is really, I think, this really pragmatic and sort of realistic approach that she takes to all of the conversations about the QHIMS and what we're going to be able to do. You know, it's, it's apparent that the Kanza team has a really vibrant footprint to build on, and I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Great. Thanks, Joss. And I, I echo those comments. I, or I've heard you speak a few times and completely agree with what Joss said. So let's meet our guest, Laura. You could briefly introduce yourself and really tell us how you ended up in your current position leading Kanza and, and really what you're most passionate about. 
Well, um, thank you very much. It's wonderful to have an opportunity to spend some time with you and and, and with our audience. Um, I'm very excited. I have to share that I've been working on in the interoperability strategy really for not only my little state in Kansas, but for the region and then, and then across the nation really now for almost four decades, for almost 40 years. And that really is a part of what uh, started when I was first entering the workforce as a special education teacher. And I actually went into my classroom and realized I knew nothing about the children I was responsible for caring for. And I didn't know what their medications were. I didn't know what procedures they'd had. I didn't know what therapies they need, occupational or physical or speech language pathology, because nobody shared medical records uh, with teachers. And when I asked their parents about these kinds of really important considerations, the parents did not have their children's medical records either and couldn't receive them. And of course, the, the, the young kids that I was working with didn't know what kinds of therapies that they needed or medications. And so I've really been focused for many, many years on making sure that people, whether it was myself as a special education teacher or a physician or a nurse, actually at the point of care are able to have the information that's necessary to provide the very best care for the people that we need to be taking care of. So to that end, um, I've worked really, I mean, passionately over the years to try to make that happen. One of the things that um, I think was one of the key um, successes that I've had in my career was working with the University of Kansas Medical Center and setting up one of the first telemedicine programs in the public school systems. So in the Kansas City, Kansas inner city public school systems, we set up uh, telemedicine services in the elementary schools so that kids who did not otherwise have access to basic health services could really use telemedicine clear back like in the early 2000s. And um, I just have to commend everybody still to this day who is involved in that project. It's still actually in place. And um, kids can get both telemedicine, physical health care services, and mental health care services. And I think that was the time that I realized in my life that technology really could bridge this gap, that if we could really focus on the different aspects that we could employ with the technology infrastructure that we could build, that something really special could happen here in terms of people having access to care, but also for the care providers to be able to have all the information they needed to provide the safest, the very safest care to those kids and adults that we're responsible for. So I've been committed to this endeavor really since one, my very first job when I walked into a, a school in, in Frankfurt, Kansas. And um, a lot of people always ask me, why is your company named uh, Kanza? But one of the things that many of you who might have driven across Kansas might find is that the Kanza Prairie there, which many of us have spent a lot of time driving across in Kansas, is one of the most beautiful prairies in the nation. And so if you get a chance, stop by and see why we actually named the company after such a beautiful prairie. Oh, I love it. What a great story. And, uh, you know, HHS just released their strategic plan that talks about whole person care. So I didn't realize you had started in the education side. That's fantastic. So important. So, all right, let's jump into our discussion. Um, I'm really excited to learn more about your experiences really with becoming a QHIN. So I think I just want to have you start with telling us a little bit more about Kansas' mission, along with what compelled uh, you all to pursue QHIN status in the first place. 
Well, it's interesting. So Kanza is a little bit different than other health information exchanges in the nation. And that's because of the way um, Kanza originated in Kansas in you know about 2010. So most states at that time received um, federal funding through the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act to establish a health information exchange. And the states actually stood up a health information exchange. Kansas was different in that instead of standing up a state-sponsored exchange, they actually encouraged a private-public partnership and basically said anybody who wants to do business as a health information exchange in Kansas can do so as long as they meet a set of very rigorous accreditation requirements. And those accreditation requirements laid out some um, what I would consider to be pretty innovative ideas for that time. So for example, one of the things that was required was that the health information exchange needed to share all information with patients. So even as early as 2012, we were required to have a, a personal health record for patients where they could access any data that was in the health information exchange. And so, so we've been doing what could now be called the individual access services under the QHIN. We've been doing that since 2012, just as a part of what we felt was the thing that was we were responsible for doing, right? If there was information in the exchange, patients should be able to see what information was there in the exchange that was being shared. So that never seemed like it was unusual or different to us. The second thing that was really interesting is that by Kansas regulations, we were required to share data with payers as it related to their members. It wasn't really, I mean, there was no question about it. Under HIPAA, we were supposed to share information for treatment, payment, and healthcare operations. And so we needed to share that information with our payers. And we never questioned whether that was the right thing to do or not. All of our participation agreements with all of our members, they all stipulated that data would be shared for all HIPAA-approved purposes. And so those were two things that I think were really um, important. Now, today, there are four exchanges that do business in Kansas. And I think that's also something that um, is, is interesting. All of us work together. One of the Kansas requirements is, is that if you're going to do business in Kansas, you are required to connect to each other. If you do not connect to each other and share information with each other, you'll lose your certificate of authority of doing business in Kansas. So one of the other things, though, that happened is that we learned at a very early I mean, very early in the HIE industry, that health information exchanges are very expensive to operate. And unless you have a broad base of participants, you are not going to be able to actually have a, a sustainability plan that's going to be functional. And so in Kansas, there was no federal or state funding that went out to the HIEs. The HIEs were expected to do it on their own. If you couldn't do it on your own, you need not be in business because you couldn't run a successful business. So we learned early on that we were gonna to have to expand beyond the Kansas borders. And that just made logical sense to us anyway. Patients don't just stay in Kansas to get care or, or even, you know, I mean, most people this time of the year in Kansas would do anything to get out of Kansas, you know, with a foot of snow on the ground and ice and temperatures plummeting into the, into, you know, the negative, you know, zero and below. Most people are trying to get out of Kansas and they're going to get care somewhere else. And so the idea that 
you know, health information exchanges should be geographically bound by some sort of specific geographic borders that patients would only get care in Kansas. I don't know if any of you have ever been here, but the the line between Kansas and Missouri is a road that's uh, really, until just recently, it was really two lanes, a two-lane road, and people went across it every single day of their lives, and they didn't think anything about getting care in other states. So we expanded, and this is kind of the core to answering your question. In 2013, we began expanding, and the medical societies in a variety of states ask us to come into their states. Now, this is, uh, this is interesting because if you think about what was happening back then, and, and you mentioned that, yes, I, I am a teacher by training, and so you didn't say that I was a history teacher, which I am by training, um, but also if you think about what happens in terms of the history of what of health information exchanges, most of the hospitals got connected together. They all got connected. Hospitals had very sophisticated EHR systems. They had money. They had a lot of really great, you know, technical uh, staff and, and infrastructure. But that is not true for the independent physician practices or the federally qualified health centers or the behavioral health organizations. So that became sort of the niche that we moved into. How do we connect everybody else together? And when you do that, you have to be able to work with every single EHR that's out there. You have to be EMR agnostic. So we developed teams of people who focused on specific ambulatory and behavioral health EHR systems till we were really good at that. And so we expanded um, first into Georgia and then South Carolina, then I mean, the list goes on and on into Connecticut and New Jersey and Mississippi and Louisiana and Missouri and Northern California. So these are all of the states that we worked in. So um, it was sort of natural when we started kind of participating in this idea that there would be qualified health information networks. It made sense to us because of our history and our background that, of course, we would want to be one of those qualified health information networks so that we could make sure that all of our participants in all of our states had access to information wherever their patients or their members were receiving care. And so it wasn't really a very difficult decision for us to make. It was a logical decision that was part of the progression of our exchange continuing to grow. That's great. Yeah, it just seems to make sense with everything that you were doing. And I didn't didn't realize that history about the uh, the Kansas HIE. So thanks for sharing that. So can you tell us a little bit about the process to become a QHIN? I know as we prep for this episode, you mentioned the requirements were rather stringent. And I remember hearing that actually at the ONC uh, annual meeting as well. People were saying, you know, kind of volumes of transactions, things like that. Can you share with us a little bit about that as well, Laura? Yes. And see, I went into this QHIN uh, model thinking, well, it'll be a bit like Kansas's certification requirements. It's probably not going to be too challenging, much more than what Kansas has had in place. And we've been doing this for years. And so I will say that the application process was pretty similar to what we had experienced previous, you know, previously in Kansas. You had to be able to demonstrate that you were a sustainable business. You had to be able to demonstrate that you were financially viable. You had to be able to demonstrate that you had proper security protocols in place through high trust certification. You had to be able to demonstrate that you could appropriately share information using the IHE um, protocols. 
So these were things that we were fairly comfortable in, in, in demonstrating as a part of our certification in Kansas. And so we got through the application process, I think, fairly well. And so in February of last year, you know, coming up, I can't believe it's already been a year, but coming up here on February 13th, we actually became a candidate QHIN, which meant that you'd passed your application process. And, and so we had passed our application process. And then, um, then you needed to develop a project plan that actually walked through all of the rest of the requirements that the RCE, uh, the Sequoia Project, which is the RCE, and the ONC had for you. And the requirements were twofold, really, on conformance testing around your technology. And also, there were requirements around um, really being able to demonstrate that you were a viable business. Because obviously, you know, we want people to join QHINs and feel confident that the investment that they're going to make in joining a QHIN is going to be a valuable investment for them. And so, so I think it's really appropriate to have both sides there to make sure that there's a, a business model that can be sustained as well as a technology infrastructure that's not only safe, but also allows um, for the technology to work at the highest level. So um, we began putting all of that together after we were um, received the candidate QHIN status, and it was really challenging, let me say. Um, it was much more challenging than I had anticipated. Now, looking back, right, looking back, I think it absolutely should have been. I mean, it needs to be. People, organizations that come into in the space of being a QHIN need to be able to meet the highest level of requirements from safety, security, um, project management, board governance, right? Board governance needs to be in place. And so we still are continuing to meet some of the requirements. So for example, one of our requirements is that 51% of our board of directors, and all QHINs have that, it's not just us, 51% of your QHIN board of directors must be members of your QHIN, which I think is a good thing. I think it's a good thing because that means that people who are actually participating in your QHIN are the ones that are making decisions about kind of your business model moving forward. So we've gotten up to 49%. We're at 49%. We had a new member that joined at our board meeting in January, a gentleman that works at a public health uh, organization. And we did not have a public health person on our board of directors. So we were excited about that. But we'll be adding at least two more board members that are also our QHIN members. And I think that holds the QHINs accountable for, for actually meeting the needs of their members. Um, and and I, I really applaud those kinds of thoughtful decisions that the ONC and the RCE have, have made around governance. So it, it, was, it, it was a lot of work. Let me just say that. It was a lot of work to get here. <laughs> and so, but we made it and we're very, very um, um, thrilled to have done so. I will also say though, that I understand that this is always going to be a work in progress. And so it's not just that you cross the finish line, which we did cross the finish line and we are in production sharing data, but there will always be changes that need to be, that need to be made to continue to advance interoperability and the sharing of data. And, 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 the, and the thing is, is that I think it's great to have not only QHINs that are going to work together as colleagues, but also leadership. 
at the federal level to be able to say, this is really what we expect to be able to see for our nation as, as our network that's going to be sharing data. So I have to say that after really four decades of working on this project, that I could not be more pleased at where we've arrived at. That's fantastic. Very uh, great to hear. And I didn't realize that about, you know, all this. uh, I know there were some, a lot of requirements talked about, but not the board one. So, you know, here at Point of Care Partners, we're obviously intrigued, right, by the diversity of the first group of QHIN designees and, you know, what the functional areas of the designees may do to impact how they operate as a QHIN. Laura, you already shared, uh, you know, kind of your background, uh, Kansas background, right, as a health information exchange and how that would impact uh, your role as a QHIN. Any comments on any of the other kind of designees? And then I'm going to have Joss, you comment on that as well. Uh, it was it was an interesting mix, I think, when we looked at it. You know what? I mean, that's the thing that's really positive. It is an interesting mix. And I think that... Um, when you think about the commitment that the organizations made to come into being a QHIN, and you think about kind of the way we did it last time, right, where we had health information exchanges that received, you know, quite a bit of money and to be able to do this work. And, and you realize that the QHINs that came to the table, there was no money. Nobody gave anybody any money. That You did not get any money for coming to the table to become a QHIN. And you had to make a commitment of your own resources, whether it was your own money or your time or your staff. You know, that was a real commitment that we all made. We said, we, this is, this is so important to us personally and to our nation that we'll make the commitment of time and energy and money. I think that is really important. And I also think it's really important that the organizations, as diverse as they are, they really do represent different parts of, of the private sector. And so when I think about this, I think the opportunity for the very diversity that's associated with the QHINs to be one of its greatest assets, I, I truly think that we're going to see a lot of really interesting and exciting and innovative solutions come out of this that not one QHIN that was in some sort of cookie cutter mo- mode, right? So one QHIN who's an EHR vendor or one QHIN that is uh, a, came from an HIE like we did or one QHIN that really came up from the long-term care business and one QHIN that had really been in, in the direct messaging business I think that's exciting. I think it gives us the opportunity to really look at what can we do that um, is innovative, that is something new so that we're not all exactly the same in this space. Yeah, that's great. Joss, I'd love for you to comment on, you know, the first set of QHIN designees and also what you've been hearing from Laura on Conta's background as an HIE. I'm just going to say there's so much that makes so much sense now, Laura, that I know more of your background. Um, I have a BA in history, so I adore the fact that you were a senior because <laughs> I think that sort of that sort of worldview, I think, is really important when we're talking about this sort of long-term transformation. The one key takeaway I would take away from sort of what the journey that Laura's talked about is, you know, she's described, I think, what we advocate a lot for in the industry is how do you make sort of permanent change happen and make incremental progress? And sort of the way that you're talking about sort of the convening that you were able to do in Kansas and the way that you brought all these different stakeholders together and that you had to feed yourself, right? You weren't reliant on sort of experimenting. You literally needed to do use cases and find a market space that was underserved. I think 
totally explains the sort of way that you talk about this work in such like a, a, a feet on the ground sort of way. And the fact that you came out of the public schools, I think is, is really, you know, you're seeing what that person on the periphery of health data exchange was living in reality, right? Versus sort of somebody seated very clearly in a payer or a provider or sort of a government seat. And I, I think all that pragmatism sort of comes across in the journey that you've been in. It really does. And I think that it's it shows sort of that incremental approach. I totally agree with your point about, you know, the the mix of QHANs is fascinating, sort of how it's all played out. And I think this idea of meeting people where they are in reality, right, and giving people an on-ramp to figure out how they're going to connect is really smart. Um, so I think it's interesting. The only thing I would say is I know, I think you've hit a finish line, but it's a little bit more like a relay race because I, to me, what December really symbolizes is really the start of a new journey and really figuring out how to open up sort of the clinical data exchange that is happening at scale today and make sort of the, the rules of the road more consistent and accessible. And so I do think it will be, it will be very interesting to see sort of the, who can be innovative and drive those compelling business cases to their initial set of users, right? Where is sort of the, what am I gonna be able to do today that I can't already do on my HIE? What other endpoints can be added that's gonna make it compelling for me to do this? I'm fascinated to see how the business model is going to roll out and what cost, you know, sort of plus is really going to look like as we think about sort of exchange itself. So at the end of the day, I, I, I think that the, the mix is a good, interesting mix. What will be what I'm sort of holding my breath on is who's number six and number seven and number eight to sort of add to the mix. And do we get more of people that already look like people out there? Um, knowing some of the names that are in the mix, I think that we're going to bring in some missing stakeholders like our friends over on the pharmacy side. But, um, you know, I, every time I see Laura present, I'm always impressed with sort of, again, the we know how to do this. We do this already. This is just building on our base. So I'm excited to see what happens as you start to, you know, migrate end users into the tougher world over um, over from the HIE, HIE world. I think I'm looking forward to see the progress reports that you give. Let me just respond to that just a little bit because, you know, we feel like, you know, whether it's right or wrong, that we really are the QHIN for the HIEs. And we feel like we grew out of the HIE space. We grew out of, of, of understanding and really focusing on what happens with health information exchange. And so a big part of, we, of what we hope is that that actually can be the case. You know, for us, health information exchanges are critically important to the care of people in this nation, and they meet really important needs for a community or for a state or for a region. And so to that end, we are hopeful that we will be able to onboard the HIEs to our QHIN so that they can have a smooth and easy onboarding and continue to be able to participate with all of the communities that they're in now, but actually just have access to a broader set of data to be able to provide more information at the point of care. So we are um, reaching out to the HIEs, and um, as a matter of fact, I'll just share that I've talked to every every single HIE personally on the phone in the last six months. And um, we are starting HIE office hours that are starting actually next week 
to talk maybe at the end of this week to really talk with the HIEs about what does that mean to onboard to a QHIN? Because I will be honest, if we don't onboard the HIEs to the QHINs, I personally will feel like we failed because those HIEs have given so much value over the years and they have had such commitment to their communities and their regions and their states and they have such already established connections that if we don't build upon the capabilities there, that will be really unfortunate. I wholeheartedly completely agree. I do love that Laura is so good because she leads into all of the opportunities to be able to expand <laughs> sort of the, the progress that the team is making. But I think that, Pooja, if you don't mind, I'd love to pivot us a little bit to talk a little bit about sort of as we look at this expansion, um, you know, how is it that we're going to get to the point of adding these other endpoints? Because, Laura, I didn't realize that base requirement in Kansas around having to have the payers at the table. That makes so much sense and fills in so many holes in my head about why we haven't really had active participation in some of the national programs from a payer perspective, because you've already connected them, right, within your region. I think it's really interesting. And so when we start thinking about the TEFCA requirements for payers to be involved in the network, and we look at the rules that dropped last week with payers now being on the hook to get data to providers, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about what happens in a world where we've now got active payer participation and the ground rules in place for them to be able to participate um, on, on networks. You know, it sounds like outside of Ponza that they've largely been excluded to, from to date. Well, let me say most of the HIEs have included payers in their networks. That it, it, It's very, very, very common for the HIEs to have payers in their networks. The national HINs, the National Health Information Networks, not so much. But the QHIN infrastructure that has been outlined in the common agreement as well as in the SOPs that all dropped on Friday last week and Keep in mind the prior authorization rules that dropped a little bit earlier in the week. All of those point squarely at the payers participating in the QHIN model and in TEFCA. Now, I will be the first to say that the all of the information that came out last week, and, and let me just say the ONC has done an amazing job, an amazing job. And, and Mickey Tripathi and his leadership there is just an amazing leader. But with all the information that came out, I will say that I have read a lot of it. I haven't read every single bit of it. And for those of you out there who have read every bit of it, God bless you. Um, but what I can tell you is that Sort of what we saw last spring as starting to be the framework for how payers will participate continues to have carried through to, to the uh, SOPs that dropped on Friday. And so for those of you who haven't looked at it, it's very important to look at two things, in my opinion, two things to look at. So one of the SOPs that dropped um, on Friday is the delegation of authority. And so look at that one. And then the second SOP that dropped on Friday is around um, healthcare operations, and, and it's been called Healthcare Operations Limited because it's really associated with just the first paragraph of healthcare operations, which is really around quality assessment and, and really um, being able to evaluate care coordination. And so those are the beginnings of what I think are going to be critically important as we start to bring together the pro provider and the payer community. 
And so for many of you who are listening here, this has been a journey um, where we really began with providers and payers very far apart, clear back in 2010. And as we slowly moved forward and we began to see value-based payment models and we began to recognize that clinical data is really important and claims data is really important. The payers have had the claims data, the providers have had the clinical data. And the problem is, of course, is that, that that data is in different standardized formats. And so there were organizations that became very proficient in managing claims data and being able to do all kinds of really cool analytic reporting. And then there were organizations that became very good at managing the clinical data, but the two never met. And when those two sets of data don't meet, you don't have a complete picture of what's happened with the patient, and you don't have a complete picture of what the cost is associated with it. So, you know, what the holy grail has always been is to bring the clinical and the claims data together. And that's what I think is so magic about what ONC and the RCE are doing, is they are creating an infrastructure to slowly bring us along to bring the clinical data and the claims data together so that clinicians have what they need in order to know what the cost of care is for their patients, particularly in a value-based payment model, and payers have what they need to know what clinical care the patient has received. Because if you think about what payers get, the payer gets what's necessary to pay the provider. Like there was a lab test, but they never know what the result of the lab test is. So how helpful is that to the payer they know there was a lab test, but they don't know what the result was. How can they actually intervene with a, a patient or with their member to help provide good care, either through a provider or someone else? So this is the opportunity, right? This, this is the opportunity, and we have to take advantage of it. So if you look, and this is, I'm not going to say this is easy to understand, because even for me, having looked at it for almost a year, I still have a lot of questions about it. But this is your opportunity. You have two weeks between the time it dropped on Friday and to the time when the ONC and the RCE are closing down questions that are going to be posed. I think you have to submit your comments by February 5th. So look at that information and actually think to yourself, how am I going to operationalize this in reality in working with payers and the providers? I think there's some really good paths there. One of the paths has been that the providers have been reluctant to provide the clinical information if they couldn't get the claims information from the payers. Well, you know what? I think that's fair. I mean, if the providers are gonna provide the clinical information, then the payers need to provide the claims information. And so in the model, in the SOP uh, for healthcare operations, you'll see that one of the requirements is that the payers who participate in the QHIN model will need to provide adjudicated claims. And they do reference the Da Vinci Project and they reference uh, the Karen Project about how those claims actually should be shared. Now, I will tell you, I think this is, is gonna take a little time. I don't think this is gonna happen overnight, but I've already had conversations with payers. And one of the things that payers are pretty open to doing is to say, look, we know we have information that the QHINs don't have and might not have, because we do still have doctors out there that are not on electronic medical right. record systems or not participating in a QHIN or an HIE. So that data is lost, but the payers have it because the claim was submitted. 
So if we could get the information, and I think we will be able to, I think the payers are open to saying, this is important for care to know that the patient actually did receive these lab tests out of practice that isn't participating currently in data sharing. I think that's a place to start. And so I think that what I see in the new SOPs is the groundwork for what I think is going to be an amazing transformation of healthcare. And I'll just mention one other thing for the innovative companies that are out there that are thinking about what they might do in the next 24 months, go look at that delegation of authority because it is going to be profound in terms of what it will do. So anyway, I'm, I'm pretty darn excited, as you can tell, about what's going to happen. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, we often talk talk on this podcast about how really CMS and ONC are now really working hand in hand. And you can see that in, in these latest rule drops. I know the other thing that was in there was um, a mention of fire. So Josh, real quick before we pivot, any comments on on that, you know, what we saw in this next version? Yeah, no, I think that um, I think that across the um, now QHIBs and in the candidate QHIBs, I think you have different levels of maturity with where folks are with their fire programs. I think that to your point, sort of the, you know, it is very apparent if you look at a timeline of regs over the last seven or eight years, there's a march to APIs, there is a march to using codified data, data versus documents. I think that's really important. I think it will get us to sort of the promise of automation, right? Where How do we get the human beings out of the pathways? Um, I think that the sort of the trust piece that Laura mentioned, I think is important, you know, payers and providers across the country are in radically different places sort of in that trust mm -hmm. paradigm today. So I think I'm interested to hear from Laura because we see some of the QHINs that are out there right now really pushing on doing some piloting and some early adoption with I would what I would affectionately refer to as the party of the willing, um, even within their existing HIE networks or, or vendor networks to be able to show and demonstrate some use cases that are specific to leveraging some of the fire assets and I guess I'm curious to know, um, Laura, where you guys are in that journey, because you've already got a really great footprint, I think, of payer-provider collaboration, you know, including not just having your participants at the HIE level, but also in partnerships like with organizations like Availity. You know, sort of where and how are you guys approaching, you know, sooner rather than later, sort of the, the FIRE aspect and the implementation guide aspect of data exchange? So one thing to keep in mind around FIRE, and this is true of all health information exchanges, is that the data that comes into a QHIN or a health information exchange has to come from an EHR, right? We don't magically make this data. It comes out of an electronic health record system. And so if an electronic health record system is not fire enabled, there's not any way for that data to be sent to a QHIN. And so you have to keep in mind that the QHINs can be as innovative and as forward thinking and as fire enabled, but if the EHR vendors are not, there will not be any fire resources coming out of those EHR products. So the expectation is, is that every EHR for every customer of that EHR system, right? So tall grass family practice in, in Kansas has an EHR, they need to have a fire endpoint, right? That has to happen. That fire endpoint has to be published in the RCE directory so that someone, a QHIN, or some other participant knows where to go get the data from Tallgrass Family Practice. And so they've got to have a fire endpoint published. 
That's the first thing that's got to happen. Then in addition to that, if you have a fire input published, that is super. But you actually have to have fire resources behind that to actually send data back. Right. So you can have a fire endpoint, which is knocking at the door. Hello. But if there is nobody at home to send the fire resources, if there there's no fire resources there, you may have just knocked at the door and gotten nothing back. So one of the things that I think has been very valuable is the focus with the EHR certification program on making sure that everyone has fire endpoints and has actually implemented their full fire resources. Because we can't do our job if the EHR vendors don't do theirs. And so I would just keep that in mind that oftentimes people forget that, that there is a down the road sort of um, flow down in terms That's of nice. how the data has to actually be there before we can share it or before you before another facility can query it. So we're pretty excited about the opportunity for facilitated fire, and we're moving that forward quickly. We um, expect to have our facilitated fire up and operational by the end of Q1. We've been working on it for a while. I will say, if you look at that SOP around um, healthcare operations, you will see that facilitated fire is really the way that organizations are going to respond to payers and to others as it relates to um, healthcare operations. So we're excited about that. And we also were excited about the idea of um, bulk fire. You know, we are a big proponent of NCQA and NCQA has a new bulk fire initiative that we're very excited to be participating in with them. And so so anyway, there's a, a lot of work around fire. And I think that one thing that I keep in mind all the time is the importance that fire allows for us to just share the minimum necessary data. Exactly. You know, today and rightly or wrongly, this is where we are. Somebody told me the other day that they received a, a document, a consolidated document of all of their patients' care that was about 65 pages long. And she was a physician and she said to me, Laura, you know, how, how, how am I supposed to manage a document that's 65 pages long? And then she said, the other option is I'll get 65 documents one at a time about every single encounter the patient has had. And she said, I can't look, open up one document, dot, jot down the medications from this document, then open up another one and jot them down. She said, we have to have a solution to this so that we provide to the physicians and other caregivers the information they really need. If I only need Laura McCrary's medications, just give me Laura McCrary's medications. And that's what FIRE will do for us. All right. So as we close out, we like to ask our co-hosts and guests if they have any final messages or calls to action they want to send to the industry. So Joss, I'm going to ask you to go first. Well, you know, I think that uh, great news on your progress with FIRE. I love all of the points you make there, right? At the end of the day, you know, there needs to be somebody to answer the door or we need to get to a place of maturity that we can leverage things like bulk FIRE. Um, I'll do a shout out to you um, from a DaVinci perspective. We're actually going to have the Providence team and they're going to talk about how they got NCQA auditors to sign off on using the clinical data exchange fire guide. So getting to that, just the data that you need sort of approach that you're talking about um, on the DaVinci community Roundtable um, at the end of January and the recording will be available when this goes out afterwards, because I think that we're getting to that place. It's so exciting. And I think that the bulk point is really important, which is if we want to get to automation, we want to get the human beings out of the way in high trust situations, 
and just get to that data that's needed, I think that that is where we are going to win and really get to this promised land we've all been trying to get to. So I guess for me, what I would love to hear about, and maybe as a toss off and as I disappear, is where and how should someone get engaged with you if they want to participate as one of these early users of the payer use cases? Because I think everything you've said today, to me, just amplifies use case and workflow is king and making sure that you have the right people at the table to participate just as we sign off today. You know, how does somebody come and find you and get involved? Well, I, most everyone knows how to find me. This is this is not a secret. Anybody can find me. You know, I, you, you can call my cell phone anytime. It's on my email address. You guys can find me. I'm out on LinkedIn. You can just send me a note on LinkedIn and say, "Hey, Laura, give me give me a call back. I want to talk to you about this stuff." And we and I do get found a lot. I mean, I get a lot of people who call me. There's EMR vendors who are looking for an onboard for the, all of their practices. There's all kinds of innovative companies that are calling me and talking about, hey, you know, we're really interested in, in working on clinical trials. What do you think this might look like on the clinical trial part? And so, um, I mean, I think that if you're interested in, in, in just having a conversation about what does the future hold and, and what can we imagine in this new world where data isn't siloed and we can actually think about transforming the care for patients so that doctors have everything that they need and nurses have everything they need. You know, just just give me a holler. I'm I'm easy to find, and and uh, I would love to talk to you. I do think that um, as we move forward, the QHIN opportunity is so profound in so many ways. We didn't talk much about public health, but we think that is a huge opportunity to really think about how would we have responded better with our COVID pandemic. And so I think that as we look at what are the use cases out there, every single one of them is going to really help us be a better nation in terms of our healthcare, reduce our healthcare costs, and improve the overall care to our patients. So I'm terribly excited about that. And if you've got ideas or you want to talk about something, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. And so I'm always trying to learn from everybody who ever reaches out to me. So just give me a call. Great. Thank you so much, Laura. And, you know, as we close out, we just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate the insights and, and that call to action, right, for, for people to reach out. So in closing, I'd just like to thank my POCP co-host, and interop expert Jocelyn Keegan, and a special thank you to our special guest, Laura McCrary uh, from Kanza. Really appreciated your time today. A friendly reminder to new listeners, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really whatever platform you use to pick up your podcast, including the Healthcare Now radio. Uh, we also post our videos of our podcast episodes, sometimes longer versions on the POCP YouTube channel. And don't forget, health IT is a dish best served hot. Is it a challenge to stay on top of interoperability regulations and the flurry of activity with fire accelerators? Email us at interopoutlook at pocp.com to learn more about our new interoperability outlook subscription monitoring service. 